0: Could just be me.
1: Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a Minute Without Parent, only in theaters May 17th.
2: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, some 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club.
1: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
3: Hello and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, your podcast about some of the best people in history. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy And with me this week, I'm super excited to have not one but two guests. I have Cam Collins and Steve Schell, who are best known for their work on the amazing Eldritch Horror Podcast, Old Gods of Appalachia. How are y'all doing? Oh, doing good. Fine. Fine. Thanks for having us.
4: Yeah, thank you. So excited. Yeah.
3: I, I first ran across Old Gods of Appalachia because... Well, I, I write horror fiction, I like horror fiction, and I live in appalachia, and so everyone kept telling me to listen to it, and I finally gave in, and I'm hooked, but I'm not caught up, so don't spoil anything okay, and, got you That's okay right. yeah, good to know, good to know and you all are you all are from Wise County, Virginia originally is that right yep.
5: yeah, yep we both we grew up there um uh, I graduated from we graduated from high school in the nineties up there, and I've lived in Asheville since two thousand and four. 2003, 2004. Uh, and Cam's been in Bristol for?
4: Um, I've been in the Tri-Cities since 2003, but I moved to Bristol in like late 2004, early 2005. So I've been here a long time.
3: The The only time I've been in Wise County was actually the first time I ever saw mountaintop removal coal mining, where they blow up the mountain and then yeah. dump all the oh, yeah. oh, stuff yeah. into
5: the valley. You mean b- behind my dad's house?
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason I'm bringing that up. But first, we're going to introduce our producer, Sophie Lichterman. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Margaret. And I wanted to have you all on today. Well, I want to have Sophie on because Sophie's always on the call.
2: I I live here.
3: Yeah, on the microphone. Yeah. I want to have you two on uh, because, well, I've always wanted to have you on because I, I like your work, but also because I've got an Appalachian story and I wanted to find some folks who would really appreciate it. Because- Today, we're going to talk about the largest labor uprising in U.S. history and the largest insurgency in the U.S. since the Civil War. And this time, the insurgents are like the good side, which is cool. And so today, we're going to talk about an unlikely coalition of 10,000 or so union coal miners, white and black, U.S. born and immigrant, gathering up guns, marching into non-union territory to bring the fight to the coal companies. Because today, we're going to talk about the Battle of Blair Mountain and the Coal Wars of West Virginia. Which is right over the border from Wise County, if I'm, if I'm.
5: Yeah, there's there's the whole weird area. It's it's so strange. Cam and I have talked about this, uh, in talking about the region where we live in southwestern Virginia and Wise County. West Virginia is maybe an hour and change away, but yeah, East probably Tennessee, an hour and change. East Tennessee's a little bit less. So our entire cultural lives. If you wanted to go to the the orthodontist or the good mall, or the mall, there was no mall. <laughs> any <me>. mall, any mall at all. Then we would just go south south an hour and change to Tennessee because you had to go over and around the mountains to West Virginia. So like as we move into the season we're riding right now, which talks about the Cold Wars and is said a lot in West Virginia, we're having to do a hell of a lot of research about a place that's an hour or so from our old houses mm-hmm. that we just – it just wasn't geographically part of where we where we went as kids. It just you know like Kentucky's right there. Why you know? But then again, there was yeah. no mall, no mall <laughs> yeah. in our south. But like first hardcore and punk shows I ever went to were in the Tri Cities in East Tennessee mm-hmm. and that part of Southwest Virginia. And then later, and those are, uh,
4: and those are here. Those were here in Bristol, which is mm-hmm. more uh, east. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah,
5: yeah. and then and then others in Eastern Kentucky and uh, over in Whitesburg and that area. Uh, but West Virginia is it's it's strange. It's right there. And as I was writing, I was writing as We were writing a story arc about a family traveling from the neck of Virginia up into West Virginia and back and forth. Mm-hmm. We're like, it's right there. Like, yeah. um, I don't know if you're going to talk about it or not, but Ash Bottom in McDowell County was the largest red light district in the history of Appalachia.
3: Yeah, that makes sense.
5: It was it was where all the miners were, but it was there were there were uh, parlor houses owned by black folks, white folks, immigrants, and the sex work community all kind of like minded their own business and took care of each other, regardless of kind of and, I'm, and, I, and I, I hate mm-hmm. I hate painting a racial ideal in any part of Appalachia because if you grew up here, you know race relations are not easy; they are not uncomplicated. Um, even you, good union folks. There's a lot of racist folks in the union uh, just yeah. because of where we are. Um, but uh, yeah, but the largest red district in the history of Appalachia was 30 minutes from like my family's house. And I, and, and apparently that continued on into the 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, it was smaller, but like it, that's still what that area was known for. So like that's just the kind of stuff that can be just over the mountain in Appalachia and you just don't know it.
3: Yeah, and that's what it seems like A lot of what's going to come up in Appalachia is that it's, despite being geographically all of these things very close to each other, the mountains and the culture and the sort of lack of infrastructure keep things very separate. And so a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is people trying to overcome those borders, essentially, that are even inside a single state. So as background, being a coal miner at the turn of the 20th century was not the best job that you could have. It was, in fact, fucking terrible. If you were lucky, you lived long enough to die of black lung, a disease where coal builds up in your lungs and, you know, turns them black, thus the name, black lung, and it kills you. And there's no cure for it still. People still die of it. And, hey, fun facts, as I was looking this up, the number of people dying from it is going up, not down. Great. Yeah, so that's if you're lucky. If you're just as likely, you'll die in some mining accident, crushed by rock, or killed in an explosion, or some shit like that. because Basically, likely as not, your boss was going to treat you like you were disposable, especially before the union came in. And coal mines are in these remote parts of the country. A lot of them, even though you're only a couple hours, you're, you'll be a hundred miles by as the crow flies from somewhere you know with large population centers or something. But you'll be completely unreachable, and often only by railway. So workers would live in houses owned by the companies. Sometimes they were only paid in scrip, which is basically. Monopoly dollars or Chuck E. Cheese tokens that can only be redeemed at the company store. So you're kind of trapped there. Sometimes people will get paid cash, but they would take out script advances. So you'd be further and further in debt. The company stores were little monopolies that sold all the shit at inflated costs. Workers found themselves deeper and deeper in debt to their employers. And I don't know, it was not a good time. People were doing pretty badly. Wages would ebb and flow constantly depending on all kinds of market stuff and depending on what the coal operators, which is the, the word for the people who ran the companies, the bosses and all that shit. Whatever they figured they could get away with, basically. One report I read from 1920 had miners working 18-hour shifts in a day for what amounted to, and I did the little like calculation to how much it is in today's dollars, $18. So you would work for a dollar a fucking hour is some of the wages that people were dealing with. And... Sometimes you only had a job a couple of days a week. In company towns, the companies owned the churches, the schools, the doctors. A lot of places, they owned the law enforcement. They picked what movies you could be shown in theaters. It's hard and dangerous work. I don't know. The the, the closest example, I, I, I'm curious what you all think of this. The, the closest comparison I can come up with in history is actually serfdom because people were on some level, like owned by their landlords and they could live freely within certain constraints. Right. It's not the same as like chattel slavery or whatever, but a lot of places people literally weren't even free to leave.
5: Oh, yeah. And a lot of the the term company town goes, you know, is a lot more loaded than than you would even think. Like they literally own like there'd be gates and there'd be guards. And one of the things and I'm sure you'll get there with Blair Mountain and some of these uprisings is like, they would turn the security forces on the miners if they didn't like what you were doing or suspected you were unionizing or suspected you were disloyal to the company. And it, it became like, yeah, it became certain. I, I tapped my nose as if someone could <laughs> see me when you said, when you said serfdom, to Margaret. So, um, yeah. but that's exactly the closest thing we
3: can, we can, yeah, we can get to.
4: Yeah. Very, very similar.
3: Yeah. And so you'll be shocked to know that a bunch of miners decided that they didn't, actually like this uh, particular setup that they were living with. So in 1890, two other labor unions joined forces and they formed the United Mine Workers of America, or the UMWA. And their goals were really radical. They wanted eight-hour workdays, no child labor. They wanted ventilation in the tunnels. They wanted to get paid in U.S. currency for the money that they were doing in the U.S. And shit like that.
4: Like, how dare they? I know.
3: I I
5: mean, you know, it's the child labor alone end of things is, yeah. That's that's a that's a research rabbit hole. If you want to feel real bad about the world, even worse than we do today, uh, read about coal mining uh, specifically young boys specifically in coal mines, and yeah, you'll you'll want to burn something down.
3: Yeah, which is the attitude that many of these miners came upon, and. So in 1897, they led successful strikes across the Midwest and they earned wage increases and their ranks shot up from... They started with about 10,000 people in the UMWA and after these strikes, they went up to 100,000 members. And from there, it it just only spread. They had significant Black membership from the very beginning in stark contrast to the labor movement in general in the 19th century. You actually weren't allowed to be in the KKK if you were a member of the UMWA, which feels like it shouldn't be saying something, but is saying something... And it's so far from perfect, like you were getting at, it's so far from perfect that I wouldn't even know where to begin talking about how unperfect it is, but black folks did make it into some of the leadership positions and the, but the push to include black and immigrant labor in the UMWA didn't actually come from the top. It came from the rank and file workers of, of every race. And basically the white union leadership was kind of dragged along into being reasonable as far as I can tell.
5: It was undeniable in southern West Virginia. I mean, at one point in time, there were like six figures of of black miners, not counting their families, yeah. just black miners on the road. They were doing the most dangerous, the lowest paying and the awfulest work that they could possibly be asked to do, which is why the eventual migration north happened with a lot of black folks in Appalachia. But West Virginia coal was and especially West Virginia Union coal was built by black miners. Like yeah. it was black miners who marched across state lines to, to their white counterparts and said, listen, if we can do this, surely you know, they might even listen to y'all. you know. <laughs> but yeah, but like Southern Appalachia especially was built on the backs of black miners and their labor.
3: Yeah. And the the history books I was looking at would say that a fifth to a quarter of all the coal miners in West Virginia were black at around the time I'm talking about in the teens and the 20s. And the, the labor struggles involve black folks, white folks, and then immigrant Europeans, mostly Italians, all working together. That was kind of 50 years ahead of its time, at least. And and a lot of people will talk about basically like these Italian and Hungarian minors weren't white, right? And to some degree that's true, but I'll, sometimes that gets exaggerated because it's, if an Italian immigrant wasn't white, it did not make them black. Basically, they were like them and the Irish and, and some of the other European immigrants were kind of their own class below white and well above Asian, black, indigenous, and a bunch bunch of other classes in terms of American society. At least again... As far as I've been able to figure out,
5: well, there, it was a different kind. It was a different kind of othering, uh, especially if you were Catholic, uh, because so many folks in power were Protestant. Uh, what yeah. would eventually become the evangelical churches. Because if you were a Papist, as they would say, mm-hmm. then your loyalty wasn't even to America; it was to a foreign power. It yeah. was to the Pope. All the way, to, if the Pope told you to do something, then that's that. Then you believe that's God's authority, and that makes you less American. And therefore that makes you less than white. So yeah, you're absolutely correct that didn't make them black, but they were definitely other.
3: Yeah. My granddad was a Scottish Catholic in the Midwest in the twenties and thirties, like riding freight trains around looking for work and had a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment presented right. his way. Right. Um I won't take everything he said as like totally true about how all that worked out, but so even in the union, black miners had to be careful to make sure that they like didn't look like they were stealing white workers jobs and you know as as you were saying they they got the dirtiest the most dangerous jobs they were left to sleep in the worst parts of the coal camps and even underground they were forced to piss in different cans than the white miners writer crystal good explains that in the early 20th century white elites sought to condemn poor white people trash hillbillies etc as part of their broader project to protect the purity of the white race against black migrants and immigrants to explain class inequality and defend capitalism. Poor white people threatened and still do white supremacy because their very existence questions a white race's dominance and the ideology of racial capitalism. I just like that quote to kind of sum up the way that... Yeah, that works. Poor white people complicate this. But so the union takes off, and with it, the anti-union movement also takes off. Employees were forced into what are called yellow dog contracts saying... I promise I won't join the UMWA or the IWW right there in the employment contract with the IWW being a, another more radical labor union who wasn't fighting for day-to-hour workday. They were fighting for the abolition of capitalism. They don't play too much into the story today, although they'll, they'll come in here and there. You could get, as you were saying, the, the company guards, you get fired for talking about unions. That was the least of it. Uh, you could get thrown out in the cold because you lived in a company house and that's just the legal stuff they can do to you. They did a lot more than that, which we'll get into. Appalachia in general, to kind of lay out the geography of what we're going to be talking about today. And West Virginia in particular is defined by its geography. Folks talk about hollers, that is the nestled areas between mountain ridges. It's it, Well, you all might know this part better, but it's it's spelled hollow, not holler, mm-hmm. but the Appalachian accent, yeah. which is out the O-W holler. for an E-R. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know this, but everything... It, I'm very excited about anything that has to do with potatoes and uh the word tater also comes from this because anything that ends with O oh, gets the er and so you get feller and tater mm-hmm. from the same same root. This is important to me.
5: <laughs> yeah, no no uh, linguistics like believe me like uh Cam and I are we are the BAs we did initially uh at the University of Virginia's college at Wise with communications and like you could go down you could go down a rabbit hole on Appalachian accents within one county just yeah. divided yeah. by um talking with a friend of mine about little stony mountain which sits in between the towns of appalachia virginia and big stone gap virginia and Mm -hmm. it's a mountain that on the inside is being eaten away by water and it's got this huge cave system in it but literally it's like a a, where a continental break happened because on one side where the town of appalachia is is coal and Mm -hmm. mining and one of the biggest boom towns that is now a dying town uh and on the other side zero coal like literally like a like a piece of cake zero coal but rich lush verdant farmland hmm. so that area got rich stayed rich to this day for pretty much while everybody on the coal side of things has been living in a town where they have things literally like local elections that were tainted by the fact that one candidate gave out pork rinds at the at the <laughs> polls um i mean that's how few people are left yeah, that's yeah. The, the social scale we're, um, we're dealing with so like the so the geography of all that stuff and yeah and Holler, you're absolutely – yeah, the the ER ending up on there. What's really funny to me is when we grew up there, I used to deliver pizza. There Mm -hmm. was Sleepy Hollow Road, Mm -hmm. and the people who lived there said Sleepy Hollow Road. It wasn't Sleepy Holler. Right. But in contrast, (laughs) geographic place, Houdel Hollow is how Mm -hmm. it would be spelled. That's Houdel Houdel Holler. Holler. That's Houdel Holler to everybody else. uh,
4: Did uh, the, the person handing out pork rinds win?
5: Yes, they did, of course. and uh, and it was a big scandal, and uh, and I think a city ma- a city manager a c- or a town manager had to resign over it. Uh, you can Google <laughs> Appalachia, Virginia pork rinds election. And I, I probably don't have the facts completely legit, oh, but they're man. there because you're dealing with towns like Appalachia, Virginia. I I lived there. I lived mm. there with my mom the last two years. I lived in Southwest Virginia before I came here. It's like you can still see the structure of the camphouses. In like the nice part of town down by the river and the railroad tracks that feed all the way through town where the coal used to be. And like, but there's nothing there. Yeah. Like it's literally a place that's, it's like watching a town bleed to death over generations of people just not. Like the high school that was built there in the 50s was built for a thousand students. They had to consolidate it when they had a graduating class of 88.
2: Wow. A bunch
5: of years ago. And they thought consolidation. For two decades because your identity is your town. Yeah. And for a lot of people, your high school mascot and your sports team. That's mm-hmm. who you are. And Appalachia, Virginia, and Pal Valley, Virginia, or Big Stone Gap as it's also known, produced NFL players. Thomas and Julius Jones of the National Football League came from came from Pal Valley High School in Big Stone Gap. Their their forefather, who I think was their great-grandfather, was a legendary player from Appalachia, Virginia. Mm-hmm. So and they're also black folks. Which is also a commodity thin on the ground left in Southwest Virginia, like the number of the number of of anyone who's not white in Wise County, Virginia, is in the sub single digits. Like I'm betting, I'm betting yeah. less than less than two percent.
3: Yeah, I've been reading a lot that there was a lot of basically like those areas are just getting whiter and whiter, and that's like part mm-hmm. of why the the black history of the, a lot of Appalachia gets forgotten.
5: Yep, and thank God for groups like Black in Appalachia who if you're not following them on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else, they are doing fantastic work of documenting black history in yeah. Appalachia.
4: I know Harlan County in Kentucky used to actually have quite a sizable uh, black population. But then, you know, when the mi- when the mines started becoming more and more automated and eliminating mm-hmm. jobs, guess whose jobs got eliminated first? And so they moved out and went, you know, to find jobs in other places.
5: And that's how northern West Virginia got the pepperoni roll, is all the Italian immigrants went north and settled in the northern part of West Virginia. And we were robbed of the pepperoni roll. Um, (laughs) And you're still mad about it. (laughs) I'm very mad. We have them, but they're not as good. Like there are gas stations who still sell them because those are families from West Virginia.
3: (laughs) So to keep laying that, this is is actually really good because you're you're sort of copying ahead on my script because one of the things I'm talking about. No, no, is, is that. The, the coal fields are as important as any political boundary in a lot of where we're talking about, right? And so you'll have your county lines, but more important than that for a lot of what we're talking about are the coal fields. And the coal fields will sort of map to counties, but not exactly. And so there's, there's three coal fields we're going to talk about, and then we're going to talk about the counties they kind of map to, because these are the three players in today's story in terms of geography, The politics of which ones are a union and which ones aren't is kind of what makes up the tension. In central West Virginia, you've got the Kanawha Coalfield, which is centered on Kanawha County. And in, in 1920, it's a union stronghold. It's affiliated with the UMWA, and it's where this week's heroes are going to be marching out of. Just south of that, you've got Logan County and its coalfield, which is also called Logan Coalfield. In the 1910s and the 1920s, this is the least union thing that's ever happened. People are getting fired, beat, and killed for whispering words like union. And the whole place is, it's kind of almost cartoonish. The whole place is being ruled with an iron fist by a sheriff named Don Chafin. And he's, he's a cartoon villain. He's, he's as much the sheriff of Nottingham as he is the sheriff of Logan County. And we'll get to him more later. At the border between these two coal fields, there's a mountain, Blair Mountain, where a lot of the action's going to happen. Then third, further south, you've got the Williamson Coalfield, which is mostly in Mingo County, West Virginia. And we're just going to call this whole area Mingo County so that we don't have to keep track of the Coalfield name and the county name. It's on the border with Kentucky, with the Tug Fork River as the the border. Mingo County is contested terrain at the time that we're talking about between the unions and the operators. And it's where the first half of today's story is going to take place. There's a town in Mingo County named Matewan, which has... All of 500 people living in it today, down from a bustling 800 people who lived at it in the 1920s. And these days, the town is a 30-foot tall wall around the entire city because it's the most flooded town in America, apparently. And the wall has nothing to do with any of the stuff that we're talking about, but it it's so ominous and cool, even though it wasn't there during the times we're talking about. I just have to point out the wall because it's really cool. and. I went there once when I was doing uh, flood relief in in Mingo County because strip mines had caused all this flooding and ruined all these people's homes and stuff. And we went to Matewan to get tetanus shots. And I just thought the place was cool. There's now a museum there dedicated to the mine wars, which if anyone is passing through Southwest Virginia is, is worth stopping at. And people talk shit on West Virginia. I'm sure you all are not familiar with this, but a lot of people talk shit on Appalachia. And... Uh, specifically West Virginia catches a lot of this as well even though West Virginia I, I live currently I'm not from West Virginia I can't claim that but I, I I live here we have two of the most badass events in US history John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry and the fucking Battle of Blair Mountain um, plus the reason West Virginia exists is that folks here refuse to join the Confederacy so I don't know I think it's fucking cool And people who are from here are allowed to hate West Virginia, but I think everyone else (laughs) should stop. Kanawha County wasn't always a union stronghold. First, it had to be a union battleground. So we're going to include the fight as a prelude. And it's a shame because it's already, it's fucking interesting of its own right. There was a strike that lasted over a year from April 1912 to May 1913. At least 50 people died violently and uncounted more died in starvation and that's how bad the mine wars are is that there's this strike that lasts a year that 50 people die violently in. And it's only the prelude. It's only the like the footnote. I mean, it's not a footnote. All of these amazing things happen, but it often ends up the, the prelude to what we're most of what we're going to be talking about. And that strike was called the Paint Creek Cabin Creek Strike because I want you all to guess where it took place.
4: Could it be at Paint Creek?
3: Or Cabin <laughs> Creek, or maybe both. It was at both of them, yes. Ah. And it took place at the, the 96 mines that employed 7,500 people on Paint Creek and Cabin Creek. And I want you to hear their wild, radical demands that got so many people killed. One, that the operators accept and recognize the union. Two, that the miners' right to free speech and peaceable assembly be restored. Three, that blacklisting discharged workers be stopped. Four, that compulsory trading at company stores be ended because you like literally weren't allowed to shop at other places and they would prevent you from, they would prevent other like peddlers from coming in and selling wares because they had the monopoly on all commerce in the town. Five, that cribbing be discontinued and that 2,000 pounds of mined coal constitute a ton scales be installed to weigh the tonnage of the miners like literally one of their demands was that like we think the system of measurement that everyone else agrees on should be the system of measurement that we use
4: i mean how how, what why
5: i i, I, I am, i'm shocked i'm <laughs> why not shocked make by up your
4: own <laughs> I, i'm
5: shocked by that the, they can't accept innovative metrics yeah that's you know true. like uh,
3: you know Six, that miners be allowed to employ their own check weighmen to check against the weights found by the company check weighman as provided by law. So, number six was literally, please let us have the law that is the law. And <laughs> number seven, that two check weighmen determine all docking penalties. Three of these seven are literally just about the weight of the coal. Wow. So, they pretty much had violence coming asking for this kind of stuff, if you ask me.
5: Yeah, I mean,
3: yeah. Obviously.
5: I mean, because you know, in the mountains, no one can hear you scream.
3: Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, they they rely on that real heavily. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is funny, though, because I live in the mountains, and you could hear everyone scream, but there's just not enough people who care. There you go. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'll, the other people who hear the screaming care. It's just that the people who have power don't care. There you go. So the mine operators immediately hire the best strike breakers in the business, which are the Baldwin Felts, which is a private detective agency. They're kind of like the Pinkertons. Pinkertons are more famous in general for union strike breaking. But the Baldwin Felts, they're the hired guns of capital. Most of them are actually ex-cops from around the country. So the union, too, they go for the very best in their field. And who shows up but motherfucking Mother Jones. And I'm almost... entirely certain she would be fine with being called motherfucking mother jones because every single miners account i've read of meeting her all talk about how much she cusses oh yeah (laughs) basically like oh she don't talk like she's in church
4: (laughs) oh nice
5: her best quote ever which is actually on the back of the t-shirts you can get from the Mine wars museum Mm -hmm. um say i'll tell the truth wherever i please (laughs) <laughs> Mother Jones, and you know there's like three fucks that aren't uh, that aren't on the back of that shirt. No, yeah. I'll fucking tell the fucking truth wherever I fucking please. You fucking assholes. That's what the shirt should be, but yeah. I probably wouldn't
3: market that well amongst conservatives in West Virginia. Probably. Right, which is a shame because as you, the more I learn about the history of West Virginia, I'm like, this is not a conservative place, you know, and it's it's not a like in its history. Yeah, yeah. No, I no, totally. So. So Mary Harris Jones, motherfucking Mother Jones, was born in 1937 in Ireland, along with basically half of Ireland in the mid-19th century. She fled the potato famine, which wasn't really a potato famine. Potatoes have never done anyone any harm. The famine was caused by British imperialism, full stop. And you know what else was caused by British imperialism? The advertisers that... it's No, wait, no, I'm not supposed to say it like that. We like advertisers because they feed us unlike the people who starved Ireland. (laughs) Sophie, did that work?
0: You did it. You got there. Proud of you. Great. (laughs) Here's
3: some ads.
0: Me Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
3: And we are back and we're talking about potatoes. Actually, we're talking about Mother Jones. So she moves to the U.S. because, you know, everyone's starving. She loses four children and her husband to yellow fever in the U.S. because the 19th century fucking sucked no matter where you were. And then she lost her seamstress shop in the Wow, I wrote down the 18671 Chicago Fire in my script. I'm so smart. I'm almost certain the Chicago Fire was in 1871. But I wrote down multiple options in my script. She spent okay, so so her seamstress shop burns down. Sophie's shaking her head at me. And Mother Jones spends the rest of her life rousing up rabble and fighting for unions. And she just went fucking everywhere. She helped found the IWW with cool person alumni Lucy Parsons, though she kind of couldn't stand the anarchists, including Lucy Parsons. Um, I, I think she didn't think the anarchists were very tactically sound. But she shows up in West Virginia, uh, old as fuck, and I think in her mid-70s. She's wearing a long black dress that trails behind her on the ground. Basically, she's like the goth Irish cussing leftist icon. Sophie has informed me that it was indeed 1871 that the Chicago fires happened. Anyway, Mother Jones, always surrounded by armed and angry men who she calls her boys. Her favorite way of rousing rabble was basically just, I didn't didn't realize this part especially, she just insulted people. (laughs) She just called people cowards. That was her thing. She was like, why are you putting up with this shit? All in in an Irish brogue. And so here's from a speech she gave during the Cabin Creek strike. They wouldn't keep their dog where they keep you fellows. You know that. You fellows have stood it entirely too long. It's time now to put a stop to it. We will give the governor until tomorrow night to take them guards out of Cabin Creek. Here on the steps of the Capitol, West Virginia, I say that if the governor won't make them go, then we will make them go. If you are too cowardly to fight, I will fight. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Actually, to the Lord you ought. Just to see one old woman who is not afraid of all the bloodhounds. It is freedom or death and your children will be free. We're not going to leave a slave class to the coming generation. And I want to say to you that the next generation will not charge us for what we have done. They will charge and condemn us for what we have left undone. I like her. Nice. So everyone's getting evicted, right? Because you're striking and you live in a company house. So they kick you out of the houses. Everyone ends up living in these shanties down by the tracks, basically the, the union's rent land and help let people build shanty towns on them so they're all living down by the tracks and what do the baldwin felts do well they do what any rational person would do and they take an armored train and they fucking machine gunned into the camp rode by and machine gunned that's how no fucks the company was about breaking the union the first time i heard that i didn't believe the person who told me i was actually in i was uh, I think I, I think he took me to the place it happened and was like, "This is where they machine gunned into the tents." And I'm like, "Of course they did. Mm-hmm. I believe you. That's a thing that happened. Is they just machine gunned into random people camping by this? They they did. They absolutely did. Because that's the history of labor. So, three thousand armed union miners march on the state capitol and they read a fucking declaration of war. Mother Jones gets arrested at one point for inciting a riot, then later for conspiracy to commit murder. She refuses to acknowledge the court and doesn't even enter a plea. They give her 20 years. She's like 75 years old. And the, the quote, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say my favorite Mother Jones quote, uh, which is, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. I have no idea if it came from this particular struggle or not, but I really like it. But my favorite version of this quote, is one that was adopted by the League of Anarchist Necromancers, which is raise the dead to fight like hell for the living. I mostly just wanted to tell you all that, nice, in case you want to steal no, yeah, it for your that, podcast. That's
5: that's fine. I, I've I've toyed with the idea of a Mother Jones analog in our world, but like there are certain things we leave alone. Like we would never mm-hmm. we change the names of places in our world. but we would never like have bloody Arlen mm-hmm. or the no. <laughs> battle the battle of. The battle of the Battle of Baitwan, like we would never, like those things are fixed points in history that happen yeah. in our world as well as the real world. But Mother Jones has to be referenced at least at some point.
4: Yeah, at some point as herself.
5: Yeah, I don't think I can make her a character exactly uh, or co-opt her to be something in our world. But no, yeah, her presence is, the mind wars wouldn't have happened without her. Yeah. I don't think.
3: Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. One woman, Grace Jackson, was interviewed, a participant in all this, was interviewed about Mother Jones like 50 years later, and she tells this story about her. Mother Jones wasn't afraid of the devil and all his angels, and she'd come up to the head of the creek here and call out for all the men that wanted to be let out of slavery to follow her, and they did, scores of them. At Leewood, the company knew she was coming, and they had machine guns waiting up there for her. Now everybody was following her, women and children and everyone. When they got to Leewood. They had a cannon mounted on top of the company's store, and they sent word that the miners had better turn back because they was planning to let loose on all the miners and their families. Well, I was just a child then, but I was in the march too, with my three uncles, my grandmother, my parents, and my five aunts. The children went too, because there were thugs all through them hills, and they used the word thugs to talk about the Baldwin Felts men, basically. There was thugs all through them hills, and it wasn't safe to leave a, leave a child alone. He'd be shot in your absence. If one was going to die, they figured they might as well just all die together because they weren't making no living anyway. When they arrived in Leewood, Mother Jones stood up there and called them operators everything but a gentleman and told them to damn well go ahead and fire that cannon if they had the guts to do it. She even climbed up onto the roof of that store and put her hands on the cannon and called them everything in the book. She didn't care nothing for Christian language because she loved the people and hated them operators. Oh, she was a female Robin Hood if there ever was. Well. They didn't do a thing. And so then Grace goes on to describe about how her aunt Nellie, who is small and pregnant, confronts a scab who yelled at her. So she, quote, with real high old timey boots all laced up at the ankle, she stomped him in the face, ripped his ears half off and knocked his teeth out. Nice. Aunt Nellie gets arrested with 20 other women who who are fighting. And she almost gives birth in prison because she's pregnant when she's doing this. But her mom stormed into the governor's office, passed the secretary and yelled at the governor until he lets Nellie out to give birth in the hospital. Oh, I just really like all that stuff makes me really happy. Uh, I mean, it's terrible things that are happening. I'm, maybe it's bad, but I that kind of stuff makes me so happy. So the strike goes on for a year. Violence all around until a new governor comes in and says, all right, you, you've got to fucking stop to both sides. And he releases Mother Jones out for medical treatment. He releases a bunch of minors who've been arrested during martial law and gets both sides down to a negotiating table. And the strike wins. It's not a clear-cut perfect victory, but the new contract was an improvement. So then the next year, the major players in all of this, the Baldwin Feltz, the UMWA, and Mother Jones, they all go over to Colorado where they did the whole thing over again in what gets called the bloodiest strike in American history. And I'm going to call a story for another time because we're going to stick to West Virginia. So that's the background we're coming from for the main two parts of our story. The first part is centered around Matewan in Mingo County, down at the border with Kentucky. And I want to introduce you to smiling Sid, two-gun Sid, Sid Hatfield, or as I like to call him, the only good cop in history. <laughs> nice.
5: With the with the most West Virginia name. Oh, yeah. It, Unless his name had it, been yeah, it's ever been Sid McCoy. I mean, like like Sid Hatfield, you don't get, yeah. Much more West Virginia than than that. No, yeah.
4: No, it's great.
3: So Sid Hatfield was born in either 1891 or 1893, depending on who you ask. And he, he maybe was the bastard son of his mom's extramarital affair. Again, depending on who you ask. He's one of 12 fucking kids. And he grows up and he watches the railways come in. He watches coal mining start. He watches bodies start coming out of the mines. He watches as widows are evicted from company houses as soon as their husbands die. And he's noticing what's happening. He notices what's happening up at Paint Creek and Kanawa. He, he knows what the fuck is up. But he doesn't have a lot of choices. He leaves school as a teenager, goes directly into the mines. There didn't seem to be any hope for a union in Mingo County, though all the all the owners had them locked down with yellow dog contracts that said you're not allowed to organize. So mate one, as as you talked about a little bit earlier, hell, all of southern West Virginia is the Wild West without the West. Matewan is a town of 800 people, and it's filled with saloons and sex workers and fighting and drinking and gambling. And it's the kind of place where the mayor runs a jewelry shop. Sid really likes the place. He gets his teeth capped in gold. People start calling him Smiling Sid. He's 150 pounds and five foot six, and he likes to drink. And, <laughs> right? Isn't so this guy great?
5: So a reasonably a reasonably sized human being yeah, in terms of height Steve, is what I'm saying. Steve yeah. too
4: is uh, five foot six. I'm not
5: 150 pounds, but I am five I am five foot seven of God loves me. So I'm five foot six in the doctor's in shoes, office, pretty much. In shoes. Buddy. In shoes, I'm five foot
3: seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I actually lost an inch before I came out as trans. I was five foot ten. I'd go into the doctor and they measure me and I'd be five foot ten. But I, I haven't changed size. I'm five foot nine and three quarters. As soon as I went in with like as a girl. They measured me and they looked at me and I'm five foot nine and three quarters and they said okay five foot nine and they wrote down five foot nine on the chart and I was like I lost an inch and I haven't even started taking hormones yet this is fucked what's up what's
4: going on yeah
3: is
5: that is that like some fee like some, some yeah. like, like, like some heteronormative uh, cis fee they act, they yeah.
3: wanted yeah, you to pay at the to yeah fun. totally like, no, okay
5: okay so you get to be who you who you really are but we're taking a fucking quarter inch motherfucker yeah.
3: that's uh, <laughs> and so smiling said. His gold cap teeth. He likes to drink and fuck and fight. And he likes mate one. And he's a sharpshooter too, though more of the throw potatoes in the air and shoot them type than the like fancy do tricks for crowds type. Because potatoes are good for so many things. Mm. Versatile. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One time, as he describes it, he got into a little shooting match in one of the mines, which is to say he murdered a mine foreman. Uh, He was found innocent at trial, so it might have been self-defense. The mine foreman might have started the fight. I have no idea. And the mayor, Mayor Testerman, who I think was as hard-drinking, hard-gambling, hard-fucking as the rest of them, appoints Sid, the town's first chief of police in 1919, basically because the mayor likes him. And he he wears a badge, and he wears two guns, two revolvers, that's how he's, two guns, Sid, or whatever, and no uniform. And as a cop, He breaks up fights between miners, he escorts people home, and he basically tries as hard as he can to not lock anyone up. And he actually manages to get himself arrested twice during the first few months that he's the chief of police. Once for illegal whiskey, because we're into Prohibition period, and once for fighting, which everyone just loved him more, right? Because of both of these things. And the mayor is the one who posts his bond when he gets arrested for these things. In 1920, the union, the United Mine Workers of America... Try to come into Mingo in force. They've been unionizing the shit out of the whole country and the sh- wages are shooting up for workers. But Southern West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky were holding out. And as long as these non union mines were running, they could undercut the union mines and fuck everything up for everyone. And miners in Mingo wanted the fucking union because they wanted to stop being treated like shit and dying constantly. So, and union organizers had been like getting shot. Like I, I read one report about in 1919 before the UMWA even shows up someone basically like he's caught talking about a union and they like show up at his house so he runs out the back door and runs into the hills and they shoot both of his legs um, breaking his femur and he he lives and he continues to organize for the union because he's fucking cool I don't actually remember his name So miners at a a place called Burnwell, which is three miles out of town, they're the first to charter themselves a union in 1920, and they meet at a Baptist church, and Sid Hatfield stands outside armed to make sure that they aren't bothered. The union miners, of course, all get fired and evicted from company housing. The Baldwin Feltz guys, who everyone just calls thugs, start showing up armed in town. Al Feltz, one of the Feltz brothers, tries to bribe the mayor in Hatfield, they offers them each $500 to put a machine gun nest in mate one. And the two of them are like, what are you fucking talking about? Fuck you. And they, they send them running. Tensions heat up. Our lady of the union, motherfucking Mother Jones, shows up in her long black dress. She's in her mid 80s now. Black workers and white workers are signing up for the union. So many people are evicted that the union starts renting land to let them pitch tents. And Mingo County goes from zero union miners to 3,000 union miners in a matter of months. In these tent cities, they form communities. And for the first time, white miners, black miners, and Italian miners are all living in the same community. And it's like the first non-segregated housing, basically, that I think that probably any of them ever experience. And the, the solidarity that they start building in these communities pretty much is how they get away with everything that they get away with. And they're starving, so they start gardening everywhere, all through the hills, growing beans and corn and tomatoes. And you want to know what else they were growing? Sophie knows what they were growing. They were growing God's perfect vegetable, Mm. the potato. Of course. And this podcast is in fact now, I've been saying we're trying to get sponsored by the concept of potatoes because I only want to be sponsored by good things and I'm very sad about my participation in capitalist society. So we actually have from Kyle an ad for the concept of potatoes.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by the concept of potatoes. Not only are these tubers delicious, they are also nutritious, able to provide nearly all of the calories, vitamins and minerals for a basic healthy human diet. First cultivated by indigenous people of South America, potatoes traveled north and south up and down the elevation of the Andes Mountains, making them very adaptable and easy to grow. They can even be stored without refrigeration. Potatoes are perfect for mutual aid of all kinds whether providing for your communities or feeding revolutionary forces and everything in between. So head on over to your nearest farmer or local food provider to learn more about potatoes and acquire some for yourself. The concept of potatoes, literally the greatest concept ever.
2: It's
1: just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor-Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
2: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainer, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
0: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
3: We are back and we're talking about how potatoes got them through years-long strikes as well as being in corn and tomatoes. And I'm sure they grew lots of other stuff too. You know, you just, you find a bit and you stick with it. And I also really like potatoes. Okay, on May 19th, 1920, 13 anti-labor thugs in suits roll off a train into Matewan carrying rifles. Two of the three Feltz brothers are with them. They hop into cars heading towards Stone Mountain Coal Company where striking miners were still living in company houses. How dare they not move out? People weren't fucking having it this time. Word spreads around town and armed folks start to gather. Mayor Testerman and Sid Hatfield decide to go have a conversation with the Baldwin Feltz men. And them and a bunch of miners catch up with them as they're in the middle of evicting a family, just throwing their furniture out into the fucking road. And Sid's like, do you even have the right papers? And they're like, yeah, we got the right fucking papers. If you want to go to double check, you got to go all the way back to town to double check. And Sid's like, God damn it. This is definitely me paraphrasing. So he goes back to town. And he double checks. He calls the deputy over in the next town over. And the deputy is like, No, they don't have fucking papers to do that. What they're doing is completely illegal. And Sid's like, You mean I can arrest them? And the deputy's like, Yeah, they're they're breaking the law. You can you can arrest them. And he's like, Oh, I'm so fucking stoked. Or to use an actual quote that he said during that conversation, which came up later in court. We'll kill the goddamn sons of bitches before they get out of mate one. Is the way he phrased it. Nice. Um <laughs> So the mayor rushes off to sort through some warrants for illegal carrying of firearms just in case the illegal eviction warrants don't come in time because they're going to come on the 5 o'clock train. Stories are trickling in into town about the day's evictions. they just fucking evicted a woman with a newborn into the rain. Willard Smith, who was there, put it like this. When they come to her, why they just picked up the mattress, the woman and the baby and carried them all out to a rock pile next to the creek. It was raining. Everyone down in the town was a minor... And when a fellow came down and told what happened, they just looked like they went wild. So people are displeased. And when I say displeased, I mean they uh, set up like a Wild West movie up in second story windows, gathered up in some shops, etc. with their rifles. The detectives show back up in town at 4 p.m. They're done evicting everyone. They eat dinner at the hotel. They're planning to catch the 5 o'clock train, which is the one that's supposed to carry the warrants for their own arrest, which they don't know. Sid goes up and is like, I got a warrant for you assholes. And they're like, yeah, well, we got a warrant for you. And they pull out this warrant that they have. And it says that Sid's under arrest. So they try and take him under arrest. And the mayor looks at it and says, this warrant is bogus. This is probably the last thing the mayor ever gets to say. People like to argue about who fired the first shot. Sid claims that Al Feltz shot the mayor. So that Sid then turned and shot Al. Or maybe the miners hold up in the hardware store fired first. The Felts claim Sid shot first. I think it was Han Solo. However it happened, Al Feltz and Testerman fall. Sid pulls two guns because he's fucking 2 guns, Sid and goes all full fucking action movie with a revolver in each hand in the middle of the street surrounded by 13 people trying to kill him. And everyone just starts shooting everyone. One Baldwin Feltz guy takes off running. He runs to the river. He swims across and escapes into the hills. Two others sneak away in the chaos and they sneak onto a train. Another guy, he had walked off before the fight to buy cigarettes. And when he comes back and he's seeing what's happening, he just walks calmly away like he had nothing to do with any of it. And he walks up to the train station. He rips up his ID, the one that says he's a Baldwin Feltz man. (laughs) And he's like, I don't have anything to do with any of this. And he gets on a train and he leaves. And another guy who's not a detective, but just a hired mover who came with them, he just fucks off and runs and he hides in a barrel for hours. So in the end, both Feltz brothers who are there, two of the three Feltz brothers total, and five other detectives, as well as Mayor Testerman and two miners who are actually both unarmed, just happened to be there, are killed. And one of the unarmed miners who's killed had just been fired for joining the union that morning. And Sid Stid- Hatfield's just standing out in the middle of this fucking carnage, <laughs> and he's unharmed. And then the next part, this feels too action movie to be true. I feel like the more I read history, the more I'm like, y'all say you're not fiction writers. I'm not entirely certain I believe you. But maybe this happened. Historians write it. And who am I to call them a liar? I'm a professional liar. I write fiction for a living. Sid Hatfield reholsters his guns. He walks over to Al Feltz. He drops the warrant onto Al Feltz's body and says, now you son of a bitch, I'll serve it on you. And then the theme song
5: played. I know, right? <laughs> uh, There's a great Mate One movie, if you've never watched it, uh, that was made like in
2: the
5: 70s, early 80s, I want to think. That's like, I remember my dad being very reluctant to let me watch it. My dad was a non-union mm. diesel mechanic. Uh, but he was non-union in a time... In the 70s, when the UMWA was suspected of being very
3: corrupt. Oh, they were so corrupt in the 70s.
5: Yeah, like they were totally mobbed up. So like, I'm not painting my dad as a hero. My yeah. dad's a, a really good hearted man who meant well, who fucks up a lot or has over time. I love him. But um, it, yeah, as we, he and I have talked about why, because you know, I call him a lot to be like, hey, I'm looking at this history and you were there for like the 60s and 70s stuff. like, Yeah what can you tell me? You know, and and he, we talked about him not being union and he's like, yeah, he's like, if you were union, you were in bed with organized crime. Yeah. He's like, you know, in 1972, when I'm like coming out of high school and becoming a, a contractor first or a contractor is like laborman, labor person or whatever. And then becoming a mechanic. He's like, if you were union, everybody knew you were crooked. So that's like such a, as somebody who is a leftist and somebody who is pro union as you know as you can possibly be it's so weird to me that like i look back at the time when i was you know the mm-hmm. the money that fed me that came into our house was like Dab's like i didn't dare sign him with the union he's like then you get you really get hurt he's like, our house got jackrocked. if you know what a jack rock is I it's do when not. they take two and they, you take two nails, you sharpen both ends, and then you bend them into what looks like a jack, like you would play jacks with as a little kid. Mm-hmm. And you throw those in non-union workers' driveways. So wow. when they try to go, where they blow out their tires. Yeah. Uh, apparently, our driveway was jackrocked when I was a kid. People tried to step to my dad in the grocery store. And he's like, it was just intimidation. He's like, these weren't good people. Why would I sign on with them? I'm like, but, Dad, the union. And he's like, the union is not always the ambivalent force of good that you think it is. It's the It depends on who's running it who's in charge of the money and where it's going. And I'm oh, again pro union, pro 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 super pro union, uh pro labor, but like it's 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 seldom in in the era past this. It's so seldom black and white that it gets it's why the UMWA is mostly toothless now. Yeah. And you know, and is kind I of mean, owned. In,
4: down to in what individual like region or even building like you work in. Um My partner is a union employee Uh, for his privacy. I will not say which union, but their current union rep for their district right now barely even shows up and isn't doing his job in terms of like educating and recruiting like young new employees, Mm -hmm. you know, who don't know, who don't know why they should join. Not doing the job, which, of course, means, you know. If they don't join, they're still they still enjoy the benefits, all the benefits
0: mm-hmm.
4: of union membership. And which, you know, people who are dues paying members who are participating in the system and voting are not happy about that. And you know, I mean, it will go away if you're not there doing your job and telling young people who don't know any better about it. And so it's and he's, you know, he has tweeted at, uh, at the union and, and try, you know, to complain before. And it's just not, not gone anywhere. And of course, then people are like, well, why don't you run? And he's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be the union rep. I, I like my job. I like my job the way it is. Thank you. But I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it really still today. It really depends on, you know, who's, who's in charge, who's running things and what's going yeah. on. Unfortunately.
3: I do love, though, all the the kind of new blood that's hitting the unions. And I feel like the unions are having a a moment again where, a it, moment. where it's becoming what it originally was. And, you know, eventually you build a power structure and then that power structure sort of lumbers on for its own sake. And then I still kind of am like, well, even the old dinosauric labor unions, like a union job just pays half again or twice as, bad as well as a non-union job, like by and large, you know, but... The theme music has just rolled. Uh, it was a very excellent performance of that. And this gets called the Mate Massacre. And I frankly don't think this is a good name for it. Because when I think of a, a massacre, I think of unarmed people getting mowed down by a government or whatever. And it's true that three unarmed people were killed in this, right? The, the mayor and two random miners who happened to be around. But for the most part, it was the, fucking lab- the anti-labor thugs who showed up, who had just shot the mayor all got fucking mowed down. And so Battle of Mate won. That's that's what I'm going with for what happened here. And everyone is fucking stoked. And by everyone, I mean miners, not coal operators or the Baldwin Feltz. Uh, The the one surviving Feltz brother in particular is not stoked. And he he gathers up a posse to storm the town on the next train, which is a night train. And Sid Hatfield, the sheriff, and the sheriff of Mingo County, St. Hatfield is the chief of police of, of Mate One itself. They deputize a hundred miners and they wait for this posse to show up. And now it's going to be a bloodbath. But the true hero of our story is the unnamed to history train conductor. As he's bringing in the posse, or rather as he's doing his fucking job driving the train, he's like, oh, fuck no, I'm not stopping. So he just speeds up and blows right through Mate One, just rolls right through, All the armed posse is helpless. They can't get off the train and no massacre happens. And that's where we're going to leave the story for today with the people of Matewan safe. I mean, except for the mayor and the other two guys, but, and the dead private cops, but whatever. So (laughs) how are you all feeling so far about this opening salvo in, in the, the mine wars?
4: It's really, uh, it's really interesting. Um, I'm glad to learn a lot more, learn a lot more about it.
5: Yeah. I mean, like, uh, You know, like Cam and I, of course, both being Appalachian from kind of the Virginia Coalfields and that the heart of that part of uh Appalachia. Like this is history we grew up with and history that for the production of our show, especially season three, because season three with us is dealing with villain stories and monster stories as the focus. So naturally, as we move into the nineteen thirties, that means we look at monsters who are union busters. We look at folks who work who have chosen the side of darkness, both literal and metaphorical. So I've been neck deep in research for a lot of this. Actually, cool side note, there is a website, which I can send you later. I don't want to give them free advertising, mm-hmm. that if you have a town that exists within their atlas, they will make a T-shirt that just has that town's name across the chest. Mm-hmm. And there is a town called Appalachia, Virginia. So if you want a really nice T-shirt or sweatshirt that just says Appalachia. But I also had ones made that say Mate One nice. and one that says Harlem. Nice. And those are my when I need to write about those things. I, it's been, I mean, it may seem dorky, but I pull those shirts. I pull the. Sh- I wear those shirts today on a writing and research day. And they kind of, every time I look in the mirror, every time I look down at myself, I'm like, okay, oh, this is this is who and where. And it's kind of like, yeah, there's a really cool band. There actually was a, a hardcore band from West Virginia called Mate One. Oh, nice. At one yeah. point in time. I don't know if they were any good. Yeah, uh, they're hardcore. There a message-
3: they, they, yeah,
5: yeah. No. It's <laughs> good
3: no matter what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
5: yeah. But, uh, but they were from West Virginia because there was an old message board, and it seemed like that scene was centered around a lot of Appalachian, uh a lot of Appalachian hardcore. But um yeah, so but like Mate One is one that doesn't get talked about enough, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, you know, Blair Mountain is huge, and we'll get to yeah, Blair Mountain, yeah. but like Mate One was like this little a little massacre blip, you know, that just <laughs> I feel like gets overlooked. So thank you for yeah. talking about Mate one. Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, where can people find out more about what you do. Do you all do anything? Do you write any fiction podcasts that people might like that you've already been talking about? Cam, tell them about the show.
4: Our show is an eldritch horror fiction anthology podcast. Uh, You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts and find out more about the show at www.oldgodsofappalachia.com. Uh, And from there, you can connect to our Patreon, all our socials, all of that. But yeah, the hub is really www.oldgodsofappalachia.com. If you like scary stories set in Appalachia, we might be up your alley. Yeah,
5: especially if you like it being tied to Appalachian history, or as we call it, an alternate Appalachia. And we've had a lot of interesting discussions that people think we're going to like change history or like, oh, is that just your way of saying like these people weren't here or this? no. No. Alternate Appalachia for us just means there's monsters.
4: Yeah, <laughs> it means there are monsters.
5: <laughs> and we may change the names of some towns so that people don't go bother people who actually live in those towns if they still exist. Then we yeah. may move some stuff around. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in, wherever you find podcasts, you can find us. We're 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 pretty much everywhere.
3: And if you're shy about like I don't I don't engage with it's funny because I write horror, but I actually don't engage with a lot of like I don't watch horror movies, right? Uh, by and large, I don't either. I'll watch some, but Weirdos. yeah, but both of you, both of you, you weirdos. <laughs> but Old Gods of Appalachia is creepy. It's it, uh, it, it carries a I don't know what I'm saying is that if you're if you're nervous about checking it out because it's a horror podcast, try it anyway. It's not going to drop you into like something that's going to keep you up. Oh, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. But you should listen to it anyway. We also
4: include content warnings uh, in the the show notes for every episode so that people can avoid the things that they might find a a little upsetting. Uh, And for those who have sensory processing issues uh, or just like to read along, we also have transcripts of every episode on our website.
5: And we do have a strict policy of there's no animal death. Nope. Uh, not in the form of you know the dog always lives the cat always lives. <laughs> There's mention of animal sacrifice. It's strictly off screen. Uh, there will never ever 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 be uh, a sexual assault scene depicted on screen. We don't ignore and pretend the things don't exist. But that's not. Yeah, we like have people no being...
4: interest in uh, making you sit through a description of that sort of thing.
5: Yeah, and yep. and just for a statement of values, the show is is very left. It's we're very. If, if it's on the left we're pro we're pro sex work we're pro queer pro trans super pro super queer it is the queer it yeah, is such It's such a queer yeah, show. yeah there's <laughs> it's it's just my follow yeah there's it's it's way way yeah it's it's one of those things where just like queer people have been in Appalachia since the beginning we have been here since like yes. and, and for the, for so many people to say like well strong appalachian women built this you cannot tell me there are that many strong appalachian women who built this uh, built this region and a whole lot of aren't queer yeah <laughs> you know so like so as far as that goes if your horror has a lot of bad tropes we do our dead level best to avoid them so give us a try a lot of people say i don't do horror but i do do old gods so we're out there if you have questions you know
4: it's okay there's still tropes we just sort of we now have our own tropes yes. <laughs> yeah fair enough <laughs> and uh we'll be back on uh, wednesday for part two of this episode yep
3: see you all then
2: People who did cool stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or
4: check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Live Nation presents Concert Week.